0: The views and opinions expressed by individuals on the following program do not necessarily reflect those of the network, Guys Guy Radio, and its platforms. It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny.
1: Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins. Guys Guys Radio. We're here to inform you, inspire you, empower you, get you to think, feel, who knows, maybe even act by virtue of the journeys, stories, experiences, and insights of the guests I bring you each and every week to the show. Today's podcast is presented by PodGo. PodGo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from PodGo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at podgo.co And be sure to add our podcast, Guys Guys Radio, in the How Did You Hear About PodGo section of the application. Okay, we've got a great show here today on Guys Guys Radio. We've got two special guests. We've got one of the top acting teachers in the world. Her name is Michelle Danner. She runs the Los Angeles Acting School and Edgemar Center for the Arts up in L.A. And she's going to talk to us about what it takes to become a successful actor and also uh, what it takes to become a successful director because she directed two movies recently. One is called Bad Impulse, which is a psychological thriller I saw recently who is uh, very, very fun and good. And also she's got a new one coming out called The Runner that's getting a lot of great press in advance. So we're going to talk to Michelle Danner. We've also got Ian Jenkins. He's a physician. He's also author of a book called Three Dads and a Baby and Adventures in Modern Parenting. And wow, what an adventure because Ian is part of a thruple. We've all heard of thruples. That's when uh, it's not a couple with two people, but it's three people. So it could be two girls and a guy and two men and a woman and who knows but in this case it's three dudes and they wanted to have children so they got together and they got a surrogate and they went through a very challenging process to be able to get the three dads names on the birth certificate of their first child and they were successful here in the state of california and they did it again with a second child and we wish them all the best of luck, and Ian's gonna come here and talk to us about his story and all the challenges he faced going through that process. So it's a great show, two very different, distinctively different and fun guests, and I think you're really gonna enjoy the show and some of the information that's shared with us about challenges in one, making as an actor, and two, if you're in a throuple, what that's like, and also, if you wanna be in a gay throuple and adopt children, that process because it ain't easy, but you know what? It can be done. All right, real quick before I get into the interview portion of the show, I've mentioned uh, kind of the 10 healthy habits I've worked on uh, during COVID and, and uh, prior to that, and some of them I expanded during COVID, some of them are new to COVID, but the last one, I've gone through one every week for the past 10 weeks, and this is the 10th one actually, And it's affirmations and what I call commands. So I do meditations, but I also do affirmations where I actually say things, uh, verbalize things that I really want to happen. I believe strongly that we need to focus on what we want, not focus on what we don't want. And that energy uh, sent in the positive, in the right direction can really be helpful. So I say things uh, like... I know who I am in truth. I know what I am in truth. I know how I serve in truth. I have come. I have come. I have come. I say things like, I am peace. I am forgiveness. I am love. I am abundance. I am joy. I am in perfect health. I am healing. There's a lot of things starting with I am. Not about what I don't want, but what I want. And believing them and seeing them as already having occurred and putting the emotion that you would feel when these things occur into them as you're putting them out there. And their affirmations, And but affirmations to be effective, they really need to be looked at as commands. You are commanding the universe and the universe is ready for your instruction, but you gotta feel it from your heart and you gotta know it to be true and you've gotta put love into it and it's gotta be for the best interests of yourself, your higher self and the planet and for humanity. You do that, and you're steadfast with it, over a period of time, I think you may see some good things happening for you. So good luck with that. Now it's time to get into the interview portion of our show on Guys Guys Radio. So let's do it right now.
0: It's Guys Guy Radio.
1: Okay, here we are with the interview portion of our Guys Guys radio show, and I've got a very special guest, Michelle Danner. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She's a she's multi-talented. She's a performer, a teacher, a storyteller, entrepreneur, a legendary acting coach in Southern California in LA at the Edgemar Center for the Arts and the LA Acting Conservatory. She's a director now also. She just directed Bad Impulse and The Runner. I just saw Bad Impulse over the weekend, fantastic and fun movie. And I saw you in there, Michelle. (laughs) And also she's had some really world-renowned acting students over the years, Uh, Christian Slater, Salma Hayek, Gerard Butler, Seth MacFarlane, Penelope Cruz, Chris Rock, Gabriel Union, and Zoe Deschanel. So Michelle Danner, welcome to Guys Guys Radio.
2: Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me.
1: Well, my pleasure, and I, I love your work. I love what you're doing, and you're doing so much. So I think for the benefit of for those folks who may not know you too well, tell us a little bit about how your career came about and then how you st- started uh, teaching in L.A., and then how you kind of uh, evolved from a teacher to a performer to an actor to a director, ex- so on and so on.
2: Yeah, that's right. There was a, a trajectory, one you know led to the other. It was like a stepping stone. Well, I was born the daughter of, uh, you know, two artists. My mom um, was a singer and a painter, and my father, a producer. As a matter of fact, he was asked by the William Morris Agency in the 60s to open their very first offices um, off the Champs-Élysées. So we moved to Paris. So I had a, a wonderful whirlwind of a childhood in, in Paris and in Europe, traveling all over Europe and hiding underneath my dad's desk at the William Morris and watching all these, you know, incredible icons come and meet with him and come to dinner. Uh, Sammy Davis and, um, oh God, the list is so long. Maurice Chevalier, Edith Piaf, even Marlena Dietrich, he did tours with her. So a lot of these, you know, wonderful, iconic actors and, and performers. And so I was... Apparently, I have been doing imitations of the Ed Sullivan Show and Alfred Hitchcock and Judy Garland when I was very little, entertaining all of the agents. Um, So it's probably a natural progression that I would go into the arts and I started to write and mount productions in school and I became the most loved a student by all the teachers and the most hated at the same time because I literally adapted one year The Queen's Necklace by Alexandre Dumas in this huge play, this two-hour play, and cast everyone in the school and, and mounted it. And it was just this incredible production. But uh, I also revolutionized all the classes. Everything was like upside down, but it was very artistic. So that was um, that was my childhood in France until I moved back to the States. Uh, we moved back to New York when I was a teenager. And there I started to study with Stella Adler and I studied with Ura Hagen and uh, some other wonderful teachers in New York. And, and the, you know, loved what was the craft of acting. I loved what made a great performance, great moment. Let me
1: let me stop you right there, because yeah. that was one of my questions. What makes a great performance? <laughs>
2: Well, you know, the answer is definitely uh it's, it's complex answer, but you know, it's uh, I think ultimately, you know, w- we can go through all the answers, but ultimately to me it's something that moves you viscerally, it's something that that penetrates you, something that, you know, changes the molecules
1: in mm-hmm. the room. Emotional connection.
2: Yeah, that, you know, I mean, listen, I'm very appreciative since I direct visual effects and chandeliers falling on people, but, you know, if I'm not pierced when that mask comes off, then it's not doing it for me. I want to be moved. I want to have that, that experience.
1: How would you describe your method of acting? You've studied with some of the greats, and maybe you could differentiate uh, some of those specifics with some of those greats for our listeners, Stella Adler, Uta Hagen, Hubert Bergdorf, William Esper, and method acting in in general.
2: Yes, well, I studied, you know, the, the Adler technique, Stella's technique, which was, you know, mostly geared towards enhancing your imagination, using your imagination, and creating with it. And I did some Meisner work for a year, uh, with the, with Bill Esper, and uh, I did, um, you know, I, I took a Hagen's class, did scenes in her class and exercises in her class, entrance ex- exercises and phone call exercises, and um, so I, I got, you know, and Herbert Bergdorf, who was wonderful, and a teacher called Stephen Sp- uh, Strumpel, that since then has passed away. I mean, I took a lot of classes, William Hickey, uh, I took lots of classes in New York, Um And, and, you know, everybody was very dogmatic in terms of one technique. This is the way to do it. It's either the Meisner or it's the Stella Adler's technique or it's the Stanislavski, Lee Strasberg. I studied the Stanislavski in depth. And I came to the conclusion in my rebellious mind, you know, that I felt that everybody had something very valuable to say, that it shouldn't be one or the other, that they all made sense. And then the actor needed to develop their own toolbox where they would put in the tools that worked for them and uh, without being like, oh, you know, just do it this way. Because I know very well that we were all doing scenes for Stella Adler and using our personal life and we (laughs) were doing scenes in Stanislavski class and using our imagination. So I never believed that it was one or the other.
1: Now you have created something you call the golden box at the Edgemoor and also the LA Acting Conservatory. What exactly is that? Is that an aggregation of the different techniques so people can kind of draw on them on their own or explain that for us?
2: Yes, it's a, it's a toolbox that actors have where they put their gold in it. And their gold are is their associations, their triggers, um, you know, what moves them emotionally, what's a desire inside of them that wants to tell stories, to communicate? All of those tools go in that you know, golden box that only the actor has the key. So it's a, it's an amalgamation. it's a it's a different tools that you use and maybe not for every single role, depending on what the medium is, if you're on stage, if you're in front of the camera, depending on what the character is that you have access to all of these different tools that you put in your golden box that are at your disposal to be Mm -hmm. creative.
1: How do you train actors to really immerse themselves with the lines? I'll give you an example. You watch a Meryl Streep film, and she never seems like she's reaching for a line or even saying a line. It's just Meryl Streep speaking and being that character, I, I, I use her as an example because to me, she's the smoothest of all in that. But it's a, it's a tough technique for people to not be reciting lines. How do, you, how do you get your students past that point? Memorizing is difficult.
2: That's when Stella Adler, you know, said something quite beautiful, which is it's not about the lines. It's about the life. It's about understanding the lines are, are beautiful. They're important. It's your job as an actor to illuminate that the writing, that, you know, but it's not, that's why acting is an interpretive art. Actors are supposed to find what's underneath the lines. And if you find what's underneath the lines, the lines come to you, they flow out of you. It's not something that you should be thinking about. As a matter of fact, if you are thinking about what's my next line or what's my line, you're out of the moment. And, um, And so much of, you know, being believable, being truthful in acting is to be in the moment, to be able to listen in the moment. So if you're thinking about how I'm coming across, which is a lot of what Sandy Meisner's technique was about, which was to um, not worry about that. Not don't, you know, don't don't watch yourself. Put your attention on the other person. Be immersed in the other person. And the lines flow out of you. The lines, I don't want to say they're not important because, of course, you know, they are. The writing is important. But for an actor, what's really more important is to hook into the life that's underneath the lines. And that has to do with creating a character that's believable, you know, three-dimensional, real person that speaks the truth, even if it's a villain. You know, I always tell my students, it's great to play sociopaths and psychopaths and, you know, all those villains. I just finished watching last night, La Mont* on Netflix, which is this French, you know, TV show about these serial killers. It's quite fascinating, great performances. So it's always about really digging in and going underneath the lines.
1: Okay, my special guest on Guys Guys Radio is Michelle Danner, and she is the performer, teacher, storyteller, entrepreneur, and she runs the Edgemar Center for the Arts, L.A. Acting Conservatory. And she's just done it all. Let me just throw a couple of wildcard questions at you, if that's okay. Um, Do you find a difference between New York actors and Hollywood actors?
2: Um, Well, it depends. I mean, yes, New York actors that have had their training in New York, Uh, actors that have gone to Juilliard or other schools, you know, in Syracuse or Purchase or Bucknell. Those, uh, you know, are actors that love theater. They love the stage. And I just finished watching over the weekend a whole um, documentary on Ingrid Bergman in her own words and was reminded why also she was such a great actress because she loved the stage. As a matter of fact, in the later part of her life, she did a lot of stage. She even funded doing Joan of Arc on stage. So, um, you know, when when actors come from London or New York or, you know, they're obviously they want to get up on the platform and they want to use their chops in that way. Um, And and here, a lot of the times you have, uh, you know, a group of actors where agents and managers in Hollywood will tell them be yourself you know the attractive young people and uh maybe they don't see the value in learning a craft and so i have to you know um enlighten them and tell them that you know if you were a doctor you would go and perform surgery if you were a lawyer you would just walk into the courtroom uh even if you were an accountant and do someone's taxes you know there's a craft there to be learned so it's not any different when it comes to acting you have to learn the craft um so you know maybe there's a bit in in la of a sense of uh you know not being in reality about what it really takes.
1: How important in your est- uh, estimation is charisma when it comes to being a successful actor?
2: Yeah. So charisma, I think has to do with something else. You know, I mean, it's like people say, you know, they, they have it, they have the it factor. Um, you know, yes. I mean, the camera has to love you if you're not uh, photogenic for some reason, uh, you know, if you, And also it has to do with your relationship with the camera. I'm just immersed with my Ingrid Bergman uh, documentary. She loved the camera. Actors have to find a relationship vis-a-vis of the camera and love being in front of it. She did because her father photographed her and did what they called moving images back at the time. So she was very comfortable in front of the camera. She found freedom in front of the camera. And so it's that freedom that creates that je ne sais quoi, that it, that you know charisma. Um, but I think there's also something deeper than that. I think there's a sense of being able to hook into something that's vulnerable inside of yourself. And in, in order to be able to hook into that vulnerability, you have to have empathy. And so for me, that becomes the most important word for
1: an actor. Mm-hmm. Great point. Do you find that there's a difference between uh, the talents used on, for an actor on stage, television, and the, the big screen? I, I'll give you examples. Sometimes I find that the tradition is difficult for some of the actors. I was watching, remember when the Entourage movie came out. I loved the mm-hmm. show and it had its moment in time. And then the movie came out and I noticed like, wow, some of these, and I've seen it with other shows also, some of the actors really projected onto the big screen and others not not as much. Do you find that? And how do you work with actors to be able to make that transition between stage, TV and big screen?
2: Okay. So I think this is what it has to do with. i always love this quote, Walter Matthau, had said that if you're doing stage, you're playing tennis. If you're doing movies, you're playing ping pong. And if you're doing uh, television, you're playing marbles. So the work that you do to create the character is the work. But the amount of energy, and you should you know, be savvy as an actor, uh, if you are, you know, what are you doing the master shot? Are you on close-up? Are you on extreme close-up? Are you on over the shoulder? You know what all those shots means, because then you'll understand how much you need to project. But I'll tell you that, you know, when it comes to TV shows, and then they become movies, television, you know, has a tendency to make you small. You play it down. And so, therefore, when you're making a feature film and then that's designed to be seen at least at the beginning on a theatrical, on a big screen, you know, a lot of the times it falls flat because actors, you know, are used to with that particular character to play it small. So it doesn't, you know, go to to the next level.
1: How does a director then, knowing that if that's the case, How does a director work with then a TV actor to pull a bigger performance out of them for the big screen?
2: You know, you know, that they give them permission to risk it, to take more risks, to be freer. I mean, I think it all leads you to finding freedom in front of the camera. And when the stakes are high, sometimes, you know, it's the opposite of freedom. You shut down or you play it safe. You don't risk it.
1: How did you make the move from uh, teacher to director?
2: Um, you know, just the desire of storytelling. There were a lot of stories that I wanted to, to this day. I have a whole folder of so many stories that I'd like to tell. And when you direct that, what I, you know, realized fairly quickly is that if you're an actor, then you're on stage, you have the control, you know, the opening night, it's the director that goes here take it the play is yours so then the actor it's an actor's medium to do the theater that's why theater's you know it's such a wonderful thing to do but when it comes to making a movie that is no longer the actor's medium that is the director's medium the director gets the sign the painting really and I wanted to make sure that the vision that I had for the story would you know come to life and the only way to make that happen is that if I directed it So I learned I'm on my fifth feature film and um, it's getting a lot of recognition in the festival circuit. I'm really excited about it, like more so than any other movie I've done uh, and it's winning awards. So um, really, really, uh, you know, there's just some movies that sometimes people really, really respond to. So I'm excited about this one. It'll come out probably in the fall.
1: Okay, let's talk about the, uh, the last two movies. I saw, as I mentioned, Bad Impulse is a psychological thriller. I saw it over the weekend. A lot of fun and uh, creepy in a, in a in a good way and great performances and direction. And Michelle, you showed up in there and played a uh, a, a, a kind of a, somebody who works at the company that's selling this uh, product, this security, home security product. Tell us how you came about that story. And I believe you used the same, worked with the same writer a uh, screenwriter for the new one, The Runner.
2: Yeah, so the writer, a good friend of mine, wonderful writer, Jason Chase Terrell, uh, did uh, some readings of the screenplay at uh, a theater in Santa Monica, which I'm here artistic director, the Edgemar Center for the Arts. And uh, we did a reading of it, and it was uh, really wonderful, and he asked me to direct it. And, you know, I wasn't sure, because horror, supernatural, was never something that I was... Uh, the romantic comedy is my thing and psychological thrillers. And then I realized, well, whoa, there's a psychological thriller here that is very intense in addition to horror and supernatural. So then I, I thought, oh, you know what, I can do this. Um, and I cast a lot of my my students in it, um, which I always do when I make movies. I'm in this unique place where I just know so many actors, such a, access to a huge pool of actors. So i to reach out to them and the script was really good. And it was a, a, you know, a psychological thriller, and horror movie that really kept you on the edge of your seat. So we shot it the, the year that they, they had the LA fires, all those fires. we actually, you know, they came and they shut us down. We had to move, but then we had to find another great location. Jane Seymour offered her house. She was a friend of uh, one of our producers. So It worked out and it came out. The Bad Impulse came out in December, the middle of all of this. And the people, it's gotten some really, really good feedback. So that was the movie. So then a couple of years ago, because it takes a couple of years to make a movie, you know, it's not fast, especially if you put your heart and soul into it. Um, I watched something in the news late at night, like late, like one o'clock in the morning that just made me really cry about how high school, high schoolers, you know, get forced by police enfor- uh, police um, enforcement to be informants and go undercover so they can capture and bring down the drug, the big drug content of the town. And uh, I was just, you know, and then, of course, you know, tragedies happen. So I was really moved by how no one's taking care of our young because parents don't know about this. And I wrote a treatment that I gave to Jason. And I said, could you please write the screenplay? And he did. And, uh, and we worked on it. And then I was able to, I had a student of mine in class who was doing some really good work. And I thought, hmm, he would be really right for the lead actor, this kid that's right behind me. And, uh, and then we would have some other great actors like Cameron Douglas and Eric Balfour and Elizabeth Rome. And we, uh, you know, the rest is history. We shot it right before the lockdown. So and we were going to push it. I was going to push it a month because it's like, oh, we're not ready. We need more. We don't have enough of this, enough of that. And, but we pushed through. And if we hadn't pushed through, I don't think I'd ever make it, would have made this movie at this point. I'm actually fairly certain of it.
1: Your storytelling philosophy, usually, you know, my class, I've written a novel and a screenplay and a TV and the, the pilot and the treatment and all of that. And I learned that uh, what does the main character want? Why can't he or she get it? And then in an escalating series of, uh, Challenges and then uh, climax, and then every scene needs to have some type of turn on it. Uh, how strict do you stay with those kind of spoken spoken word rules on uh, storytelling?
2: Well, you know, I mean, I think there's a formula because the formula works. You know, I have studied a lot of uh, you know screenplay and taking their workshops, you know, and Siskel and um, uh, McPhee, you know, was um, name, you know, a lot of. I've studied a lot of the structure of it.
1: McKee, Robert McKee. McKee,
2: exactly. But the structure also is meant to be broken. Uh, You know what I mean by broken? The rules need to be broken, can be broken, should be broken. To make it interesting, if everybody's doing it the same way, the same cookie cutter, you know. Uh, I think that um, that's where Christopher Nolan is interesting. I remember when I sat in Robert McKee's class, no flashbacks, you know.
1: No voices. Right. Exactly right.
2: <laughs> you know, really? <laughs> Tell
1: Scorsese that, right?
2: Yeah, but that's not interesting. So you have to break the rules. You have to be willing to break the rules to make it interesting.
1: What do you want your legacy to be, Michelle?
2: Oh, I don't know. You know, I, I do know, actually. <laughs> um, that I, you know, that actors should feel like I've helped them. Um. You know, I try to every day. Teaching is very much a, part, a strong, very strong part of my life. And not because I have to, because I really want to. I have a need to pass down and a responsibility, all this, you know, information, this knowledge that I've acquired throughout the years. And, um, you know, I mean, we'll see. I'm not done yet in terms of making movies. I think I have some more that are going to come out. Uh, you know, that people should, if they happen to come across one of the movies that I've made, that they should be entertained, that they should be moved.
1: Fantastic. Michelle Danner, our special guest on Guys Guys Radio today. Where can uh, people look out for, uh, first of all, where can they find Bad Impulse? And also, where when can they look out for the runner?
2: Bad Impulse is um, everywhere, I think. It's Gravitas is our distributor, but uh, Amazon is the first thing that comes to mind, but... Uh, it's like in every, every platform. And uh, in terms of uh, the runner, uh, we're doing the festival circuit. We have quite more festivals. You know, we had London International Film Festival now coming up and we're the uh, World Fest in Houston live. They're doing it in person at the end of April. So we're really excited about that. And uh, then we'll be in New York the month after that. I, I would say in the fall, we can look forward to seeing, uh, you know, it'll be released.
1: Fantastic. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for being here. Michelle Dana on Guys Guys Radio. Really appreciate your being here today.
0: It's Guys Guy Radio.
1: Okay, Guys Guys Radio, it's got a special show today. You know, I was just talking to my guest about this, and, you know, my motto as Guys Guy is really. When men and women can be at their best, everyone wins, and there's not enough love in the world. And this is a perfect story for that. My special guest, his name is Dr. Ian Jenkins, MD. He's a San Diegan, as I am now, uh, even though I come from New York City. And he's written a book, a really cool book called Three Dads and a Baby. You may remember the movie with Tom Selleck back in the 80s and Ted Danson. It was actually directed by Len- Leonard Nimoy, Three Men and a Baby. But this is an updated version because it's called A Thruple. And it's a polymorous uh, relationship between three guys. And they decided to have a family and have a baby and then another one. It's a really good story. So my special guest is Ian Jenkins. He's a Dr. San Diegan author. Uh, he's got two kids now. Uh, his partners are Gem- Jeremy and Dr. Alan Mayfield. And it's the first family with three dads that got a birth certificate with all three names on it in the state of California. And uh, they're a gay polyamorous uh, thruple. So welcome to the show, Dr. Ian Jenkins.
0: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
1: So let's get right to it.
0: Um, how would
1: you define uh, a throuple? And then how would you define family? Because I think it's important in setting up the context as to what we're going to talk about.
0: Sure. Yeah, throuple is just um, three people in a relationship the way a couples two in a relationship. And it's really not that strange. You know, when you go to someone's house and you find out they've got two kids instead of one. It's really not a big deal. And when people come over to our house for dinner and they find out I've got two partners instead of one, they go, oh, okay, that's different. And then they, they realize right away we're just regular people um, trying to raise kids as best we can and, um, you know, do our jobs right and take care of each other.
1: So how did you three guys get together? Because I think you were with one, one of the gentlemen and then you met the third one and you guys decided, hey, we like hanging out. Let's, let's, let's make it a
0: throuple. Yeah. Um, So I I started, uh, you know, I met Alan uh, when we were both in our training in Boston at one of the hospitals there. And um, we started a relationship. It's been about 18 years now. Um, And um, we then met Jeremy almost nine years ago. And at that time, you know, we, Alan and I had discussed whether we would want to date someone uh, as a couple and we're open to the idea Jeremy was kind of familiar with the concept, but he's like, that's definitely not for me. So I said, you know, that's great. You seem like a really interesting um, person. Why don't we just hang out You can be friends? Um, I met him for lunch just to make sure neither of us was crazy. And uh, he seemed like a great guy. So I said, come come over to our house for dinner. Um, And we just had such chemistry. We spent, you know, the next week every night hanging out um, and things just grew from there.
1: Awesome. And then when did you guys kind of get together where you were, was it a living arrangement where the three of you then started to live together? And then what led up to the decision to, Hey guys, let's have a baby.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, polyamorous relationships come in all different flavors. Sometimes there's like people in a relationship and one of them is dating somebody else, or, um, you know, you might have a partner that you're living with, They call it your nesting partner and someone else that lives separately or may have a partner of their own. Uh, we're pretty simple, actually. We're just three people that live together and we're all in love. Um, Jeremy's relationship with us kind of grew over time. You know, we, we wanted uh, him in our lives, but we didn't want to rush things. So, um, you know, after some time and we realized that uh, it was a good connection, he moved in. And uh, from there, we started to do things like connect our finances. And now we own properties together. And then, of course, we Uh, realized we were going to be a long-term thing. We came out to all of our families uh, and made sure everybody knew each other. Um, And then, you know, began our own family. And since then, we've uh, intertwined everything with trusts and wills and our um, birth certificates of our kids so that we're all uh, connected that way.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. So I'm sure there, and then the book describes, the name of the book is Three Dads and a Baby, Adventures in Modern Parenting. And again, my guest is Ian Jenkins, MD. He's written this terrific book about... The, the challenges of a Athruple uh, adopting in the state of California. And probably California is the easiest place to do things like that because it's a pretty liberal state. So what was the process like of uh, finding a surrogate the, determining how are you going to have the baby, how, how are you going to have the three dads on the birth certificate, whose uh, sperm were you going to use, uh, all, uh, all of that kind of stuff. You have a lot of yeah. challenges and it cost you a lot of money. And I know it was about 125 grand, right?
0: Below. Uh, yeah, I think we 121, something like that. But yeah, it was ridiculous. We did not know what we were getting into when we started that process. But uh, once you're committed to the idea, then we you know had to just sort of sure. plow through. So. um how did the process work? Well, the first thing that started us off was um, adding Jeremy to the relationship. And to be honest, we wouldn't have the kids if there weren't the three of us. Um, you know, Alan and I had talked about it, but we didn't really get to the point of like, we're definitely gonna do this because there's a lot of hurdles. And Jeremy kind of pushed us towards like, no, we need to be parents. like, we all are interested in this. And if we don't do this, we'll regret it later. And kids are gonna be wonderful. So um, we were definitely kind of moving in that direction. And then one of his um, friends from work had a sister had some embryos left over from her family creation that she couldn't uh, use she already had several kids and she couldn't you know you can't have five (laughs) so she's like would you like to have these two embryos we want someone we can trust to raise them right we think it'd be cool for them to know their siblings across town and we said you know let's talk about that Uh, we started having discussions we realized that that sounded like a great opportunity and that started us down the road um, towards being dads unfortunately those two embryos didn't work out and so we ended up having to create embryos um, and that's a really interesting process because for most people you want to have kids, you just stop using birth control. That's the usual decision, but we had to find a biologic mom and, you know, talk about egg creation and have contracts between us and her. And then we had to find a surrogate and again, contracts between us and her for people that do this, they all have to have psychiatric clearances. It's required from the IVF clinic. So there's like all these additional hurdles and steps, health checks. Um, and um, we ended up creating embryos using a mixture, so we we all tried to fertilize a third of the eggs that we got from the first retrieval. And um, we only really had success with our first cycle. We did get two high-quality embryos from that, and and they are now our kids, Piper and Parker.
1: Well, that's, that's fantastic. What were some, for our listeners out there and our viewers, what were some of the challenges uh, uh, that if people want to consider the same type of path uh, that they might run into, and how did you kind of get over those? Like the legal system, yeah. obviously, you were a first in having the three names on the birth certificate. Um, you just got into kind of the uh, biological process, but there must have been more. What were some of the surprises and roadblocks along the way that you weren't expecting?
0: Yeah, so the first thing is like, you know, we we hadn't done surrogacy before or IDF, and so we didn't know these things, but there's lots of tricks to reduce the cost and make it easier, And anyone who's getting into this process needs to do their research first, talk to people that have done it, read books about it. I have some pointers in my book. There's also a book called Conceivabilities, which is fantastic and describes the journey of this woman who realized that she could get IVF done for a fraction of the cost. I wish I had read it before we started. Um, (laughs) But there are some tricks like when you go to an IVF doctor, they're going to say, you need this test of your uterus or you need to have these um, STD screens and things like that. And then they just bill you for it but you can have all of that done through your insurance. Insurance might not pay for the implantation um, or the medications, but they'll pay for the tests. And so your doctor's not gonna tell you that because they wanna make money. So you gotta know those things ahead of time, get that work done with your primary clinic, it's covered by insurance, then come back to the doctor and say, now we're ready to do the implantation. So that's that's like one tip, um, the kind of thing you'd learn by speaking to people that have been there. You can get these medicines out of country from a Canadian, or we actually use an Israeli pharmacy, and that saved us many thousands of dollars because these drugs are really costly. So things like that. Um, We also ran across a situation where the attorneys that did our contracts, I mean, to me, it almost seemed willful They wrote a contract for our surrogate that said you'll have this, you know, adopted embryo implanted, and you agree to all this and everything, and that was fine. But then when we did egg creation of our own or embryo creation of our own, they're like, you can't use that contract because it specified um, adopted embryos, and you're going to be making fresh embryos. But legally, I mean, medically it makes no difference, but legally we had to like redo the contracts, and we're like, why didn't you think about that? You're supposed to represent our our needs and anticipate that we could have future children rather than just one attempt, you know? So like thinking about those things before you go in could save you a ton of money. And that's just the general IVF stuff.
1: Mm -hmm. We had
0: all these additional hurdles being uh, in a throuple. So at the time we did not know that you could put three parents on a birth certificate. We assumed that someone would have to be left off. That's actually not true. There's lots of ways you can get three parents on a birth certificate. And there's a really good state-by-state guide on the internet you can find if you search. Um, And uh, what we realized is not only can we have three parents on a birth certificate sometime later in California, like, add one of us down the road, we were able to get the precedent of doing it for the first time at, you know, before birth. Um, so, we never had a period where any of us were like estranged from our kid legally. We were all legal parents from the beginning. And that's the first time that's happened in California. But as you noted, California is like probably the most progressive place on earth for this. Um, it's, as far as we know, the first time that happened anywhere in the world. Uh, it has subsequently happened in Canada, we know of. Um, but we wanted polyamorous families to know they might be able to get. Uh, legal protections for their family um, that they wouldn't have anticipated because things are changing.
1: What has it been like, and who does what in the parent parenting? You have three parents, and you have, uh, for let's say, starting with the first child, with Piper, little girl. Um, two questions here: One, did you choose to have a boy or a girl, or did it just were you surprised pleasantly? And um, secondly, who does what in terms of uh, the parenting? Because I, I have a seven-year-old, and um, it's 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 always a surprise every step of the way you're learning and learning and learning. And every year it's completely different. And uh, you know there might be a million books on parenting, but until you go through the process, you, you, you're just reading a book. It's when you're in there, because every kid is different and every parent is different and every couple or throuple is different. So how did you guys, what have you learned and how do you kind of divvy up who does what?
0: Yeah, so to your first question, um, we mostly just wanted to have healthy, happy kids. We did say if we had the opportunity to have a girl, we wanted to do that and we wanted to do that first because girls are smarter and they develop faster. And we thought that um, a girl would be a better like, big sibling to guide a younger sibling through the world. And we did end up getting one uh, excellent female embryo and we decided to implant her first. And that's why we have a girl who's um, you know, approaching four and our son is approaching two. That's fantastic. Um, and, and then, as far as who does what, uh, we actually try to make it pretty spread out and um, distributed because we don't want any parent to feel like they're getting, you know, too much laid on their plate. And we also want to do it; like it's actually really a lot of fun to do these things with the kids, and and to the just really benefit from the love and appreciation of kids uh, when you do stuff with them. And so we'll we'll basically alternate. Um, we make sure that there's like a there's a bedtime routine that we try to stick to, um, and we just change who's going to do it. So who's doing hair? who's brushing teeth, who's changing, you know, who's doing baths, um, who's putting kids down. Like we just rotate through that or help each other out. Um, and then everything else we share too. So we all do cooking different amounts, different things, but we all share in that responsibility. And, you know, some of us lean a little bit more towards the cleaning others more to the cooking, but we, we all make sure it's really distributed. And we think that's going to be really cool for the kids growing up, especially our girl. She's not going to grow up in a family where she sees that like one person does the laundry and that's a gendered thing. She's going to be like men do everything um, because, you know, there aren't any women in this house to, to, to do the laundry or to make the food. So, um, you know, she's going to see that men can and should and do like take all those family responsibilities and do the parenting and hug and love their kids. And, and that's that's how it should be. Okay. It shouldn't be like a, a gendered thing that we love kids or take care of them.
1: Ian Jenkins, uh, MDs, my special guest on Guys Guys Radio. We're talking about the Polymorris throuple that he's involved in and living and loving and his two beautiful children that he has and the process of that. So um, how does... Uh what's the what's the uh, living arrangements like in your home if you don't mind my asking because you know we have we we go through those routines with my son and he'll come over and he'll want to get in bed and this and that. and there's no, it never seems to be enough room. What do you do when you got three guys? You got two kids? Is everybody sleeping in different rooms? everybody never. together? I mean, how do you how do you balance all of that?
0: It's a common question, and you know, to make matters worse, we have a seventy pound dog and a fifty pound dog. <laughs> and then on top of that, we had two little white dogs too. Uh, they've passed away since, but, I mean, there were a lot of, a lot of mammals um, to take care of. Uh, I mean, the first tip is uh, m- one of my partners is 6'3", uh, sorry, six five, I'm 6'3", and um, you know you need a king for that. So you get yourself some king beds, uh, you get yourself a sound machine so everyone's not waking up. That's That was like crucial, we can't live without those. Um, and we kind of rotate where people sleep based on the work. So if someone's gonna have the day off and we actually have a pretty, um, pretty flexible schedule as far as like there's usually a parent home, uh, because we all have a slightly different work schedule, um, you know, whoever is going to be in that role might sleep downstairs next to uh, the nursery. And then the other two parents might sleep upstairs. So we kind of rotate. Um, and then the dogs go back and forth. Uh, we've been pretty good at keeping the kids uh, in their beds until just recently, Piper's developed a habit of finding us first thing in the morning and cuddling, which is actually pretty cute.
1: Sure,
0: um, um, so Don't mind that at all.
1: So how, what do your kids, uh, what, are, who do they, what do they call the three of you? I know you mentioned it in the book, but I think it'd be interesting for our listeners in terms of like differentiating like there's is daddy and dad and how, mm-hmm. give us a, a
0: background uh, on that. Right now, I'm Papa. Okay. Uh, Jeremy is daddy and Alan is dada. <laughs> and uh, we expect that to change. Um, we actually, you know, uh, because we talk to each other with our names, our kids picked up on that. And Piper, I don't even know if she was three when she was like, "Oh, Jeremy, could you get me this thing?" And we were like, "Wait, what? Like, you're three? Why are you calling us Jeremy or Ian or something like that?" So she's just, uh, I guess, an early bloomer. And I think she's probably going to change it. She might start calling us um, Daddy Ian, Daddy Alan, something like that, or she might just go to names because, um, you know, at some point, she's not going to want to call us Daddy any longer. But yeah, we we really had to sort out who's going to have what name. And we considered because "Dada," "Dada," and "Daddy" are similar. We considered trying to get a name from like another culture or make one up. Um, some families have done that. And I thought um, considered using Baba, which is a very common term for um, like a male parent in other cultures. But um, we ended up just going with, you know, the ones that I told you about.
1: Well, it must be fun because now you have uh, for the kids, there must be a lot of uh, aunts and uncles and more grandparents, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Yeah. I only really met one of my grandparents and she was already like in the early stages of dementia. My other grandparents passed away before I could get to know them. Um, my, uh, little girl has met seven grandparents, which is pretty awesome. And there's just, you know, like there's another parent and there's more love. I mean, it's, there's like a village built in to taking care of her. And so she has more people in her life to teach her things and have experiences with and visit her and cherish her. Um, and it it really is to me eye-opening. I don't think we were meant to wall ourselves off in suburban homes, their city apartments behind fences and locked doors and raise kids just two people and their kids, I think we were meant to be part of a community and share in the joy and wonders of things. And I just really delight in having other parents bring their kids over and play with ours and, um, you know, share that growing up experience and share baby clothes and shoes and toys. And like, it's, it's just better that way. And it's, it's lovely to, to have that kind of community.
1: Okay. Just a couple more questions. And thank you so much, Ian. What's been the biggest surprise for you about
0: being a father? You know, for me, I I wasn't sure that I'd be a baby person. Uh for me, I've always been like at a party, someone's got a newborn baby or you know, a young baby, and I'm just like, ah, it's kind of weird. It's like like holding the iguana. You know, I was like, well, that's cool, but I'm not sure that I want that. Um, I knew that I would like kids and teaching kids things. I love teaching. Um, but for me, like all it took was um our our first baby had some uh, birth difficulties. She was uh had to go to the ICU and it was terrifying. I just connected with her instantly and I would have fought 10 bears for that baby and I loved her to bits. And I've never had anything mean as much to me as like cooing and baby talk with um, my kids. And I just, I wasn't expecting that. I thought I would love the children, but you know, get through the baby period. I love the babies.
1: Yeah. And it changes and changes and changes and it gets better and better and better by the way. And if you're, I'm kind of like you that way. And I've learned, I always thought I'd be better once the baby's not a baby. And that's been the case because I can relate more and like it's more of like a uh, not a toxic guy thing, but it's a guy thing where we can have conversations and stuff where when it's a baby and it's that, that I didn't feel comfortable knowing how to do that as much instinctually, instinctually as, as my wife did. Were any of the three of you feeling more um, quote unquote maternal in a way at those early stages, the baby stages? Because you sound like a lot of guys where it's like, hey, I'm not really
0: a baby person. Well, I mean, I, I flipped over instantly before, we were even, before I could even hold her I was a baby person. Okay, uh, She had to go off to the ICU and I didn't get a chance to hold her before that happened. Uh, I was still just in love with her. And I was, you know, we've all been super attentive parents um, and, and have loved the baby stage since then. Uh, we even had the bio mom was with us for both of the kids early life. And so we got actually had four parents taking care of the kids, which was fantastic. Um, but yeah, we, we all have gravitated towards um, taking care of the kids. And for us, it's been very important to. Tell them over and over again we love you and to give them kisses goodnight and other things that a lot of guys like don't know how to do they never saw men be affectionate or caring parents and they don't know how to do it themselves they need to be taught we want our boy to grow up with like a normal emotional range and the ability to take care of someone whether that's a mate or a kid in the future um so that's that's crucial to us too it sounds
1: like you're doing all the right things and i congratulate you on your courage and also getting through this and being a a leader in the area so other people now know that they can do it you did it first having three three uh guys on the birth certificate i think that's wonderful so um last question and i ask this respectfully so in a throuple i'm a straight guy what's date night like
0: (laughs) oh my god we're like uh parents of young children so we like (laughs) try to have nice food and then uh you know share a bottle of wine and then maybe watch something on netflix and then we all pass out Um, you know, just let's say in general, um, poly families, like the main thing for poly is that you, you want to be, um, focused on your partner's well being and, and their happiness. And if you can delight in the happiness of someone else, and you can imagine being happy for your partner that they went out on a date night and had a great time, you know, with your other partner or with their partner, like, again, these family structures can take any form. If you can um, be delighting in them and live vicariously and say, like, I'm glad you had that experience, then you might be ready to um, to be a poly person yourself. If that makes you feel jealous and uncomfortable, then, you know, you're not ready for that work. And you're not certainly not ready to ask for any privileges yourself from a mate that you might have. But for me, like I am just really happy to see um, my guys happy. And if there's something they want to do, whether that's a show that I'm not interested in or an activity or a trip or something like that fantastic. Like there was a time they went up to a cabin in Big Bear. Um, and I stayed home with the kids and I had a great time just being, uh, the, you know, the primary dad and they had a great time getting away. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just take care of each other, follow the golden rule, communicate. Um, and it's all about each other's happiness and everything. So, I love it.
1: Okay. Guys, guys, radio, our special guest, Ian Jenkins, MD, the name of the book, Three Dads and a Baby Adventures in Modern Parenting. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Ian, or get your book? Any social uh, well, media you want to share?
0: Instagram. That's uh, Three Dads and a Baby with underscores in there. Um, we. I also have a blog on psychology today, uh, which touches on medicine issues as well as um, polyamory and family issues. Um, but the book is your best bet, and you can get that at bookstore.org. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. Um, probably it should be at local bookstores by now and uh, Amazon.
1: Great. Okay. Well, thanks so much for being on Guys Guys Radio, Ian Jenkins.
0: Thanks. It's a delight. Keep up the good work. I All love right. Thank this. You. Uh, I love this vibe. <laughs> it's Guys Guy Radio.
1: Okay, I really enjoyed our conversations today here on Guys Guys Radio with our two wonderful guests. We had Michelle Danner, actor, teacher, and director extraordinaire in Hollywood, California, and also Ian Jenkins, the author of the book Three Dads and a Baby, Adventures in Modern Parenting. He's also a physician. So what did we learn today? I think from Michelle we learned that you know acting is a craft and it is an art and if you want to get good at it and be able to make a living at it you better get the right training and michelle's classes at the los angeles acting school and the edgemar center for the arts are probably in the top echelon of all the classes you could take uh, across the united states or and the world for that matter because you know obviously hollywood is a uh, one of the centers and the hotbeds of the acting and entertainment industry and michelle's one of the best and as She told us she's classically trained and she knows how to adapt and integrate different types of training for her various students and help them bring out the best of their talents. From Ian, what did we learn? Well, I think we learned from Ian's experience in a throupled relationship is that things aren't easy, but when there's a will, there's a way. Ian and his partners wanted to create a loving family and they succeeded. It took them a lot of time, it took them money and it took them to get through some challenges in court to be able to be in a position to adopt their two wonderful children. And I give Ian and his partners a lot of credit for that. and I think what we learned was you know when there's a will, there's a way. And once again, as I've said many times in the past, there's not enough love in the world, so we wish him and his partners and their children all the best. Okay, Guys Guys Radio, we're here every Wednesday evening on KCAA Radio in Southern California, 102.3, 106.5 FM, 1050 AM. The podcast and my YouTube drop worldwide every Thursday. There is a replay of the KCAA show on KCAA every Sunday evening at 6 p.m. Pacific Time. You can also check out my content and a lot of the things I've been working on on my website, it's called Robert RobertManni, M-A-N-N-I.com. I've got over 300 plus blog posts about life, love, the pursuit of happiness. I just uh, published one concerning uh, 10 habits I picked up or expanded upon during COVID. And it's been my pleasure to write about that because I really learned a lot over this past year. And I know with all the horrible things that happened there's always some good things that can come out of it if we take the time to take a half a step back and say, okay, what can I learn from this experience? So I hope as everybody comes out of this COVID situation that's been kind of sitting on us for the past year or so that we look back and say, okay, is there anything I can glean from this experience where I can make my life and the life of those around me better from the experience we had during the shutdown? can also download three free chapters of my novel, The Guys, Guys, Guide to Love. It's a romantic comedy about two men in advertising competing for love, sex, power, and money. It's got savvy women and flawed men, and it's all about competition and backstabbing and loving and cheating and jealousy and friendship and redemption. And it's been called The Male Successor to Sex in the City. It's a very fast-paced book. It's a lot of fun and it's about something. I hope you'll check it out. You get three free chapters on my website and you can order the book pretty much anywhere. Obviously, Amazon has it and you can read the reviews there. You can also catch me on social media. I'm all over the place on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I welcome you to reach out, friend up with me and correspond or whatever you feel like doing as long as you keep it on the up and up and stay positive. So I'm so appreciative of my guests on Guys Guys Radio. We've done over 460 shows now. We've got lots more lined up, and the purpose of our show and the guests we choose is to bring you new information to consider, and hopefully it'll help make your life better. As I've said many times before, I don't expect you to do everything and take everything that every single guest says as gospel, but I'm sure you can glean a lot of learning out of the guests I bring you here each and every week to Guys, Guys Radio. So thanks so much for being here. We're going to see you next week. And as I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first.